0: For those who don't know, my name's Jonathan Mickey. I'm president of Kellogg College, so it's a, it's a huge pleasure to be able to welcome you all here for tonight's lecture, the Bynum-Tudor um, lecture. Uh, we're extremely fortunate to, um, to have Dr. Con to give the, the lecture. I'm not actually going to introduce a speaker, though. I always think the, the um, importance of a speaker is reflected in the way they're introduced, uh, whether you have to introduce yourself or introduced by someone else. Whenever I give lectures, I have to introduce myself. Um, Other people are introduced by others. In in this case, um, I'm going to introduce the man who's going to introduce the man. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Michael Yudkin, who is going to say a few words about our, our speaker. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I've had the privilege of knowing Dr. Ralph Kuhn for many years, and today I have the pleasure of introducing him to you. Uh, Dr. Kuhn is a pharmacologist, a businessman, and a musician. He came to this country at the age of 12, went to school in Salford, and then he attended the University of Manchester, where he was awarded the degrees of BSc, MSc, and Ph.D., he won a postdoctoral fellowship from there to the Instituto Superiore di Sanità in Rome, where he worked with Daniel Beauvais and Ernst Chain, and then another fellowship to the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. He then joined the pharmaceutical industry, taking a senior position with the American company Smith, Klein and French. <clears throat> After a very successful period with Smith, Klein, and a subsequent five years as managing director of a Swiss company, he decided that he would like to strike out on his own and he set up an independent company for the clinical evaluation of new therapeutic substances. This very creative move was based on the realisation that independence from pharmaceutical companies could enhance the credibility of the reporting of results and Dr Kuhn's company quickly became a byword for reliability and integrity. Dr Kuhn is a recipient of many honours. He's a Fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine, a Fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences, and an Honorary Fellow of the British Pharmacological Society. About two years ago, he achieved the very rare distinction of election to an Honorary Fellowship of the Royal Society. Meanwhile, his company has been the recipient of the Queen's Award for Export Achievement. I started by saying that Ralph Kuhn is not only a pharmacologist and a businessman, but also a musician. In fact, he is a musician of professional standard. As a young boy, he studied the violin, and when he was in Rome as a postdoctoral fellow, he started to train in vocal music. He has given recitals in the UK and abroad and he has recorded music as diverse as the cantatas of J.S. Bach, the leader cycles of Schubert and Italian baroque arias. In addition to his other honours, he is a fellow of the Royal Academy of Music. There's one final thing that I want to mention, although as Ralph doesn't like to brag, I shall do so sotto voce. He is a considerable philanthropist. He set up the Kuhn Foundation in 1991, and since that date, his foundation has given generous support to many medical, scientific, and musical projects, ranging from initiatives at the Royal Society to engage the public with science, to an annual Bach Prize at the Royal Academy of Music. Very many people have cause to be grateful to him, and we are grateful to him for coming to give us this lecture tonight. Dr. Ralph Kohn's title for his Bynum Tudor Lectureship is Challenges and Opportunities in a Changing World.
0: Professor Mickey, Professor Jutkin, friends and colleagues. Thank you, Jonathan, for your very kind, welcoming remarks. You've instantly made me feel very much at home here. And Michael has done his very best to embarrass me. And as the old saying has it, if only my mother could have heard it, she would have believed every single word. (laughs) But I also have some revelations to make about members of the Jutkin family a little later during the course of my lecture. (coughs) May I first of all express to you my heartfelt gratitude and thanks for the great honor you've given me to be the 2008 Bynum Tudor Lecturer at Kellogg College. Clearly, all the really important things happen somewhat later in life and are well worth waiting for, for. And I'm certainly most grateful. Now, normally my speeches are relatively brief, which allows me to avail myself of Henry VIII's chilling message to all his wives, I won't keep you long. (laughs) But the Bynum-Tudor lecture presented at Kellogg College, Oxford, is in a different category and will, I fear, mean that I shall keep you for a rather longer period. It is about nine months since I received the unexpected and most welcome invitation from your former distinguished president, Dr. Jeffrey Thomas, to become the 2008 Bynum-Tudor Visiting Fellow and to give the Bynum-Tudor Lecture associated with it. Initially, I must confess, I had some serious reservations, whether I could accept. It seemed to me that this lecture is the privileged domain of a high-powered academic with impeccable credentials or a captain of industry carrying a household name. I felt that you had every right to expect from a pharmacologist invited to give this prestigious lecture that he must have made at least at some stage in his life a major contribution in the discovery of a life-saving drug and if so I shall have to disappoint you. I can only avail myself of the famous words with which Sir Isaac Newton is said to have addressed Robert Hooke, both prominent 17th century members of the Royal Society. If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. I have not seen further, although I have stood on the shoulders of giants, many giants, during the course of my life. And my great achievement was to wear them down in the process. (laughs) Instead, I served a number of very agreeable idols, which included a period in academia, followed by my work in the medical industry, the setting up of an independent medical research organization, and throughout the whole of my life, I have pursued my great love of music. This combination of activities, I felt, might raise some eyebrows as to the seriousness of the individual and his approach in dealing with life's problems. However, my concerns were finally laid to rest when I met your distinguished president, Professor Mickey, who expressed the view, if I may paraphrase his his thoughts, that a jack-of-all-trades might prove to be an interesting variation on, or, if you like, deviation from the original theme and purpose of this lecture. (laughs) My decision to accept was also made so much easier by the unstinting support and encouragement I've received from your Director of Development, Jitka Ford. Well in the intervening nine months period I have been pregnant with all sorts of ideas as to what this lecture should embody, being aware of the eminence of my predecessors, who have presented this lecture before me to what I'm conscious is a very demanding, critical and discerning audience. The day of parturition has finally arrived, and I have to to deliver what I hope will be an acceptable sibling to those so successfully presented to you in previous years. When I first visited Kellogg College about one and a half years ago, I was most impressed with all I saw and heard. It was pointed out to me at the time that Kellogg College was unique amongst the Oxford College-Aid system in providing flexible learning opportunities for mature students, studying at graduate level and particularly those doing part-time studies, which they, of necessity, have to combine with other responsibilities. The College ensures that the widest possible range of students gain access to its many intellectual resources. It now includes a significant number of full-time students who provide a most valuable international dimension to the life and activities of the College. The philosophy of the College is further enhanced by the establishment of the Kellogg College Research Centers. I instantly identified with the objectives of the College and the special requirements of the students for reasons which will become apparent during the course of my discourse. Although Kellogg is one of the younger colleges in Oxford, it carries the name of a most eminent and old-established American family whose highly ethical business activities are directed to ensure that we consume all the right ingredients for a healthy existence. Mens sana in corpore sano, a healthy mind in a healthy body. Not only has the Kellogg Foundation been most generous in supporting this college, but it is typical that another eminent American, Mr. Bynum Tudor, should have endowed an annual lectureship carrying his name. Illness has prevented his attendance this year, so may I, on behalf of all of us, wish Mr. Tudor a very speedy and complete recovery, and we shall look forward to seeing him and his wife, Joanna, here again next year. I take great personal pride in declaring that I've had a lifelong love affair with the United States, where I've studied and worked during the course of my career and established many lifelong friendships. I return at regular intervals to the States with much pleasure and always in great anticipation. It is a vital and vibrant society. I should perhaps also mention that I'm no stranger to Oxford. As I've been involved with a number of colleges for many years. My initial association goes back to the 1950s when I applied for a postdoctoral research fellowship available to British and European pharmacologists. The chairman of the award committee was the distinguished Oxford pharmacologist Professor Harold Byrne, so I'm much indebted to him for furthering my career. And I've worked closely with a number of medical scientists from Oxford, particularly Sir Ernst Chain, Fellow of the Royal Society, with whom I've spent three years as a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Health in Rome. Ernst Chain shared the 1945 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine with Fleming and Florey for his pivotal contribution to the isolation of penicillin and demonstrating its powerful chemotherapeutic properties. It was the first antibiotic to be used in medicine and revolutionized the treatment of infectious diseases. This work was carried out in Oxford at the Sir William Dunn School of Pathology. To commemorate the name of Ernst Chain, an annual prize with which I'm associated was at Imperial College London, where Chain became professor of biochemistry upon his return to England. I have also had close connections over many years with a distinguished fellow of Kellogg, Professor Michael Yutkin. He was the first to be awarded a professorship and the degree of Doctor of Science. Michael has also had the foresight in choosing the right genetic makeup. His father, Professor John Yutkin, was a renowned nutritionist who, amongst many other contributions, wrote a famous book pure, white, and deadly, referring to the serious adverse effects excessive sugar consumption can induce. As you can imagine, the powerful sugar lobby in the United Kingdom was not amused by his revelations. It caused quite a stir, I recall, at the time. Professor John Jutkin and I were involved in a study of obesity going back to the early 1970s. The title of the resulting publication was The Inevitability of Calories, showing beyond dispute that if you don't eat calorie-rich food, you don't put on weight. Now, this was contrary to the views held by many obese people who say to their doctor, I starve myself, doctor, and still I put on weight. Well, Professor Jutkin exploded that myth in a most elegantly argued article. Now, you might have been somewhat perplexed by the title of my presentation, Challenges and Opportunities in a Changing World, not quite knowing what to expect. Well, when I proposed this title, I was equally perplexed what I was going to say. It has been apparent to me that these words are constantly in use. People talk continuously of challenges, opportunities, and the fact that the world is also undergoing change. I therefore thought of putting all these words into one title, as they are very much also related to each other, and often one leads to the other. The whole of life is in a continuous state of change. And if we look at the present world situation, it's quite apparent that we are facing monumental problems of all sorts, which will inevitably lead to changes and require adaptation to a changing world. What I hope to do in this lecture is to attempt to describe to you the story of my own life in the context of that enigmatic title. In fact, Michael has already done so, so it's really superfluous, my repeating (laughs) it all. How I've seen many changes and challenges from earliest childhood and how I tried as far as I could to take opportunities as I saw them in a world undergoing dramatic historical and geographical changes in the 20th century. I had to adapt myself to changing situations in a challenging world. And talking about a changing world reminds me of the great novel Il Gatto Pardo, The Leopard, by Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa's masterpiece, of which an epic film was made subsequently. The most famous line in the novel, and film is spoken by Tancredi, who tells his elderly aristocratic Sicilian uncle, Don Fabrizio, if we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. It is a very profound and true statement. (laughs) Things cannot and do not remain static over a prolonged period of time, and if we wish to remain on top, we have to take account of this fact and act accordingly. As I shall be speaking about my own life, I have to be careful that I don't bore you all to tears, as happened on an occasion when a speaker noticed someone in the front row nod off. Well, as long as he remained quiet, this didn't matter a great deal, and he carried on. However, after a a while, the individual started making loud noises, which was rather alarming and disturbing. The speaker, more than a little embarrassed, gestured to the chap next to him to nudge him a little to wake him up. Not amused, the response was, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. (laughs) Well, let's try and avoid a similar situation. I was born in Leipzig Saxony in the eastern part of Germany. My mother, came from Berlin, and my father from Russia, but left as a young child seeking a better way of life in Germany from the continuous harassment and sporadic pogroms to which Jews were subjected mainly at the hands of the Cossacks, but also at times with the connivance and encouragement of the Tsarist authorities. Germany was defeated in World War I, and the Versailles Treaty imposed harsh, punitive conditions on the vanquished. Germany, in the form of the Weimar Republic, became a very unstable country and the extremists of both the right and left, Nazis and Communists, were fighting for supremacy, with the Liberals and Socialists in between showing extreme weakness in running the country. As a result, Hitler came to power as Chancellor in January 1933. And very shortly thereafter, discrimination and persecution against Communists, Jews, socialists, homosexuals, and other socially undesirable elements started in earnest. My father did not believe Hitler to be a passing phenomenon, as many others did at that early stage, and he decided very quickly to leave Germany fearing worse things to come. We therefore left for Holland in 1934, a country he knew well, as he had established trading relationships there during the course of the years. But, being only a few years old at the time, I have no real recollection of Germany. I started school in Amsterdam, which meant having to learn a new language, but at the age of five, this was not a major problem, and I mastered Dutch quite quickly. This was my first challenge in life, being uprooted from the country of my birth. As a child of that age, I hardly noticed that the 1930s was an extremely dangerous period in world history. And by 1939, World War II started after the Nazis invaded Poland. Holland remained neutral until it was savagely attacked in May 1940 by the Nazis and here begins a part of my life which I recall quite vividly. I was then 12 years old. We decided to leave Amsterdam hours before the Nazis entered the city on 14th May. We literally closed the door of the house and managed to escape that same evening on the very last ship leaving Holland. All our belongings were left behind and we arrived seven days later on 21st May 1940 in Liverpool as refugees, penniless and destitute. Actually, this escape made subsequent headlines and has been described in detail by the distinguished historian and Churchill biographer Sir Martin Gilbert. He highlighted the unique heroism displayed by a Dutch lady, Mrs. Weissmuller Meyer who organized our escape and that of 200 others, including 90 Kindertransport children. Our lives were saved as we were allowed to board the ship with the Kindertransport children, but we had no idea as to the ship's destination. Kindertransport, you may recall, was the name given to the scheme whereby 10,000 children from Germany were allowed to come to England and absorbed by kind and generous families. These children were separated from their parents, under the most heartbreaking conditions, and in almost all cases, never to see their parents again, who perished in the Holocaust. This was my second uprooting, and meant finding a new home in Manchester, where we settled, and learning a new language. But at that stage in life, it was again not too difficult to achieve this reasonably quickly. In our home, we spoke three languages simultaneously. German with my parents, Dutch, and our newly acquired English with my siblings. And often, as you can imagine, all three languages were used together between us in formulating our sentences. It was quite an unholy mixture. An interview with the High Master of Manchester Grammar School was arranged within several weeks of our arrival in Manchester. I remember it for one very specific reason, that I did not understand a single word of the discussion, which was conducted by the high master and my cousin, who had just graduated in medicine at Amsterdam University and was the only member of our family who, at that time, spoke English quite fluently. The high master did not think I would feel comfortable mixing with other boys without having a firm grasp of the language and recommended that I first learn the language in an elementary school and in a year or two to present myself again. That was a perfectly reasonable judgement, but did not seem so to me at the time. I devoted myself to learning English and subsequently joined Salford Grammar School, as I had in the meantime established friendships with many of the local boys. Those were Britain's darkest but also finest hours in the war in 1940, standing alone against the Nazi colossus. A further challenge faced me after I completed my grammar school education. I wished to enter medical school in 1947, and although I'd won a university scholarship, this was insufficient to obtain a place in any medical school in the country. The reason for this was that the government had instructed the universities to allocate 90% of all available places to returning ex-servicemen. My brother, who had served, joined the British forces shortly after our arrival, spent five years in the army before being demobilized, and it seemed perfectly fair that those who had given so many years of their lives for their country, Britain was now our country, should receive preferential treatment upon returning home although I suppose we youngsters felt hard done by in not being able to fulfill our life's ambitions at that early stage. The question was, do I wait for another year or two before entering medical school, or is there some alternative subject I should consider? I had set my mind on medicine because there was a family tradition in this subject, which I wished to continue. Amongst a number of doctors in the family, my mother was related to the Director of Reproductive Physiology at the Charité Hospital in Berlin, Professor Zelma Aschheim. The Charité was one of the best-known hospitals in Europe before Hitler and also contained the famous Rona Institute of Biochemistry, where many Nobel laureates had worked. Aschheim and Professor Bernhard Zondek had described the first qualitative pregnancy test from the urine of pregnant women in 1927. This became internationally known as the Aschheim-Zondek test. Those of you trained in the medical sciences may remember this historical test. My mother was actually a born Aschheim. The fact that I couldn't enter medical school at that time forced me to think, of alternative ways of studying to fulfill my ambitions in life, yet another challenge. Dramatic developments had taken place during those years in the development of new drug treatments for a variety of diseases. The 1940s was a period of tremendous excitement with new drugs being discovered by academia and the drug industry. It was truly a revolutionary time when huge advances were made, These developments included treatment of infectious diseases, including tuberculosis with recently discovered streptomycin, cardiovascular diseases, rheumatic diseases, discovery of vaccines to prevent viral diseases, drugs against pain, and so on. In the years following the end of the war, America flourished and Europe returned to work. The post-war optimism notwithstanding the Cold War produced a series of discoveries in physics, chemistry, biology, medicine, and technology that gave rise to many late 20th century innovations. In physics, the antiproton and the neutrino were discovered in the United States. In chemistry, new radioactive elements, Einsteinium and fermium, were discovered. Dorothy Hodgkin demonstrated the structures of vitamin B12 and penicillin. In biology, Crick and Watson in Cambridge and Wilkinson and Franklin at King's College London unraveled the structure of DNA. And Moore and Stein in the USA working on identifying amino acids and their sequences in proteins. In biochemistry, Fred Sanger determined the complete amino acid sequences of insulin, for which he was awarded in 1958 the first of his two Nobel Prizes. In medicine, Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin evolved forms of poliomyelitis vaccines, and John Enders produced a measles vaccine whilst in surgery. Joseph Murray performed the first kidney transplant, and Edward Thomas the first bone marrow transplant. The white heat of technology produced silicon transistors, float glass, robotics, semiconductors, artificial diamonds, videotapes, modems, fiber optics, computer language, and fuel cells. The growth in the sciences in the West and in the United States was noted in a commitment to interdisciplinary, collaborative, and rational ways of working. A new breed of wandering scholars began to move freely between countries. The professional environment was intellectually exciting, culturally international, and socially more informal. In laboratories, research facilities and hospitals around the world, little attention was paid to race, creed, gender, nationality or religion. It was an ideal atmosphere in which to work. I was very enthusiastic about these extraordinary developments and discoveries and was rapidly drawn to the idea of becoming part of this exciting drug discovery process. I therefore abandoned my original thoughts of studying medicine and decided instead to study pharmacology, as this was the subject which dealt with drug discovery. This was a further challenge and resolved by the opportunity I had of changing to a topic which turned out to be what I really wished to do. It demonstrated to me that in life it is important to be flexible, to be realistic regarding opportunities presenting themselves and to be able to adapt oneself to new environments. I was accepted by the University of Manchester and took a PhD in Pharmacology. The research project involved a sensitization phenomenon induced by the whooping cough vaccine and its possible implications when immunizing children against the whooping cough organism. After I graduated, I faced a new dilemma – what should be my next step? Remain in academia or join the pharmaceutical industry in order to be part of the therapeutic revolution which was then gaining momentum? As I had no firm views at this stage in my life, I thought that I needed more time to consider my next move, and in any event, I had no postdoctoral research experience. I was very much supported by my chief professor, A.D. MacDonald, who guided me and took a very personal interest in my further development. A parasitic existence was therefore indicated if I managed to achieve this by applying for scholarships and fellowships. I spent four years in research three in Rome with Professor Daniel Beauvais and Sir Ernst Chain, both Nobel laureates, and one year with Professor Arnold, uh, Alfred Gilman in New York. Ernst Chain was also an accomplished pianist of professional standing with whom I established a very close musical relationship. He returned to England in the early 1960s as professor of biochemistry at Imperial College London when we saw a good deal of each other in our scientific work and musical interest. Ernst Chain was also a refugee from Nazi Germany who faced the dilemma in his early career whether to be a scientist or musician. Happily he chose science, otherwise who knows how long we might have had to wait for penicillin to be developed. In fact, penicillin arrived just in time during World War II to save the lives of millions. At this point, I should like to digress a little and tell you about my other great passion in life, music, as this will fit in with my years in Rome, New York and subsequently London. I have from earliest childhood been very keen on music and studied the violin whilst living in Amsterdam. The war interrupted my musical studies, but I loved music passionately and I listened to classical music wherever and whenever I could. Had my life not been disturbed several times in childhood, I might well have considered a career in music. Rome was the place where I rekindled the lamp of music, but this time in its vocal form as I particularly loved vocal music. I felt. The need again to express myself in music and had the opportunity to do so as all the circumstances seemed right for this in Rome. I began to study with an outstanding voice teacher and learned the Italian bel canto repertoire, that is 17th and 18th century music. I was able to do this in my spare time after a day's work in the laboratory. All this activity kept me rather busy. I first heard Italian vocal baroque music around 1950 when the celebrated and for my ears finest Italian uh, lyric uh, uh, tenor Benjamin Uccigli came to Manchester to give a recital in which this music was included. It was breathtakingly beautiful. I had never heard such magnificent bel canto singing in a recital. And he became my idol and gold standard for beautiful singing. That is the meaning of the words bel canto. When I arrived in Rome in 1954, Gili had retired and I lived, I, and lived there. My singing teacher, Maestro Marcantoni, originated from a place called Recanati, the same little town near the Adriatic coast where Gili was born, and they knew each other very well. I was very keen to meet Gigli whilst in Rome and asked Marcantoni if he would be able to arrange this. He insisted that I was not yet ready to have an audition with the commendatore, as he called him. This is the English equivalent of a knight. I fully realize this, of course, but I wish to have any excuse for meeting this legendary figure. Well, if you want something badly enough, as I'm sure you will agree, a solution can very often be found. Gili was an insulin-dependent diabetic and in heart failure. And I suggested to Marc Antonio that he should tell him that here was a young student from England who was a medical scientist doing research in Rome and working in the field of diabetes, which was quite true, who would love to meet him. Gili was known to be extremely generous with his time in encouraging young singers. That did the trick and I spent the most enchanting afternoon at Gili's elegant home. I sang an aria from Donizetti's opera, Don Pasquale, Bella, Monangelo. Angelo, which Gigli then analysed, pointing out how I could improve the performance. The standard of my singing must have left a good deal to be desired at that time. Gili died not long afterwards, and I can only hope that there is no causal relationship. <laughs> it was an unforgettable experience hearing him repeat the aria I had performed. Well, perhaps you will allow me to include this event into my list of challenges and opportunities. He gave me a testimonial and encouraged me to continue singing, so here we are. Now at this point I should like to illustrate this music with a love song called Caldi Sospiri by Raffaello Rontani, an Italian seventeenth-century composer. It is music which I've come to love and frequently included in my performances, recordings and broadcasts. What you will hear is from a recording I made with the English Chamber Orchestra about three years ago. And the music was orchestrated by Mark Brown, another friend who studied at Oxford University. Over to you.
2: rylk yo bolo frattan
0: Uh, I should have mentioned that Caldi Sospiri means warm sighs, spelled with an S, and not thighs with a TH. For that, there are other love
2: songs.
0: (laughs) Well, back to challenges and opportunities. After my three years in Rome, I had another very happy and most fruitful year at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. And it was Professor Gilman who advised me as to the next step in my career. Although I had enormously enjoyed my academic research here in New York, I felt that I might be more suited to a career in drug research in the pharmaceutical industry. An introduction from Professor Gilman to SmithKline and French, as it was known in 1958, now with all the amalgamations and takeovers, GlaxoSmithKline led to my being appointed to a senior position in that company, with particular responsibility for assessing the preclinical and clinical data on new products offered to us by other companies with a view to negotiating the licensing arrangements. This was the company... This way the company would be able to add to its own range of products with those obtained from other sources. It was a highly successful operation as it led to SKF marketing drugs from many companies and research institutions from all over the world. It was also a shortcut for the company from the financial development and marketing point of view. Usually, all the preclinical data would be made available, including some early clinical trial results in patients, on which a reasonably accurate opinion could be based as to the product's potential. But problems arose when a newly appointed research director felt that my group's activities in securing new products and product ideas from external sources clashed with their own ideas and programs, both as far as available manpower and financial resources were concerned. My group was singularly well-structured for acquisition of foreign developed products as we had considerable expertise in the assessment of data and in addition we were familiar with the main European languages which made our collaboration with foreign companies much easier. We aimed to secure products which were of superior therapeutic value wherever these might have been developed. I was of the opinion that a company must have strong internal research and equally choose close links to outside companies and institutions to take advantage of whatever opportunities might present themselves. I promoted a global, international outlook as far as research and development was concerned. This is obvious now, but was not the case necessarily in those days. This led to differences of opinion which could not be breached bridged nor resolved, and rather than engage in long, drawn-out arguments, I decided that I faced a new challenge and to seek other opportunities where my ideas were shared. It was not long before I was approached by a leading Swiss biological company and appointed managing director with worldwide responsibilities not only in research and development, Uh, But especially the clinical investigations of their products, but also to deal with commercial and financial matters. This gave me additional worldwide connections and I developed strong links with clinicians and pharmaceutical companies of considerable importance for the company, which ultimately gave me the necessary experience to subsequently establish my own organization. After five years with the Swiss company, I resigned and took a dramatic new step in 1970 by setting up what was then the first independent clinical research company in Britain, specialising in the clinical assessment of new drugs. It was the beginning of the clinical research organisation era, which led to the outsourcing of clinical trials from pharmaceutical companies to highly specialised groups set up for this purpose. This was an important development for the drug industry and was recognized as such. With the creation of specialized clinical research organizations, companies could now be more flexible in taking on products under license and ensuring that the work required would be done to the highest standards to satisfy the most stringent regulatory authorities such as our own Medicines Control Agency and the American Food and Drug Administration. The additional advantage was, as far as my newly established company was concerned, the fact that we were a totally independent, unbiased organization whose sole objective was to secure reliable data for our clients which would allow them to decide whether they had a marketable product. Briefly stated then the rationale for the company I had established was to provide the variety of services required by the industry for the development of new drugs and to satisfy health authorities worldwide for the registration of ethical pharmaceuticals, prescription drugs. My reasoning was based on the fact that British clinicians were particularly known and respected internationally for their objective and unbiased scientific approach. Pioneering statistical work, the foundation for clinical trials had been undertaken by such outstanding authorities as Sir Austin Bradford Hill and Sir Richard Doll, the latter also distinguished Oxonian, which allowed firm conclusions to be drawn on clinical efficacy and adverse side effects of new drugs. This was a crucial prerequisite when planning and executing clinical investigations. I mentioned the importance of conducting properly controlled clinical trials and you might be interested to hear that it was none other than William Shakespeare who drew our attention to its significance some 500 years ago. Polonius' advice to his son Laertes in Hamlet may be paraphrased as follows. Those drugs thou hast and their adoption tried grapple them to thy soul with hoops of steel. But do not dull thy palm with entertainment of each new hatched, unfledged remedy." Here you have the basis of the controlled clinical trial. And it is the properly controlled clinical trial which, from a medical point of view, decides whether a product is destined to be marketed. Knowledge of individual markets and linguistic skills enabled the company to establish close connections with many pharmaceutical companies in Europe, the United States and Japan, and in recognition of the global nature of the company's successful activities, we were presented with the Queen's Award for Export Achievement in 1990. Thus, 20 years after its creation, we received the Export Achievement Award as we undertook most of the work on behalf of foreign companies, thus earning much needed foreign hard currency. Here was a challenge which produced a unique opportunity to revolutionize how clinical trials should be conducted. As a result of our successful scientific work, the Cohn Foundation was established in 1991 to support projects in scientific and medical research, innovation, the arts, particularly music, and humanitarian aid. Of particular interest was the Royal Society's Science in Society program, investigating how best to communicate results of scientific research to the public. We have been keen supporters in the creation of the Academy of Medical Sciences as well as the National Osteoporosis Society, where I was a founding member. My company did a good deal of pioneering clinical work in osteoporosis. As far as music is concerned, we established the Wigmore Hall International Song Competition in London in 1997 for young singers and pianists, which has now received international recognition. And we also have strong links with the Royal Academy of Music, where we have supported vocal scholarships for some years now, as well as the annual Bach Prize. And as from January 2009, there will be a Bach cantata series on a Sunday morning, which we are all very excited about. We also support chamber music at Oxbridge, including the excellent series at Jesus College Oxford. As far as possible, I have taken an active personal interest in these projects and have served as a member of award committees for scientists and artists. The activities of our foundation are very much in line with Winston Churchill's famous statement, you make a living by what you do and a life by what you give. So what are some of the basic requirements for success in research? Paul Ehrlich, the father of chemotherapy, thought there are four ingredients. He called them the four G's. In German, Geld, Geduld, Geschick, and Glück. Money, patience, skill, and above all, luck. Pasteur was of the opinion that discovery comes to the prepared mind. Equally, one might argue, as I would, opportunity comes to the prepared mind. As the Bynum Tudor lecturer, I surely must quote a weighty American presidential view. And it is too early to cite the president-elect Barack Obama at this stage. I could, of course, quote the vice presidential Republican candidate, Governor Sarah Palin, who, romanticizing over the Alaskan oil resources, used the slogan, dig, baby, dig. But as she has not made it, I shall quote instead Calvin Coolidge, the United States President of the 1920s. He once exclaimed, nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination are omnipotent. I've tried very hard throughout my life to follow my instincts and do the things I love. Science and music have gone hand in hand. I can truly say that during the many years of traveling extensively to visit clients all over the world on medical scientific matters, I never failed to also take scores with me to study for recitals or recordings. All my 16 CDs were recorded during the last... 20 years, most of them during the past 10. I do not believe that age is necessarily a limiting factor in life. And I'm supported in this by the great Roman philosopher and statesman, Marcus Cato, whose superb essay on age is my constant companion. Each age can and should be lived to the full. If a man is determined to be foolish about being old, he will never be comforted by the number of years he has lived before, however many they are. Remember, Monet painted his finest water lilies in the fullness of his years. Hokusai, the Japanese woodblock artist aged 80, at the height of his fame declared, if I were given 10 more years, I promised to become a real artist. Verdi wrote his masterpieces, Othello and Falstaff, in very advanced years. And Neville Mott did his Nobel Prize winning physics after he had officially retired in Cambridge. And we must not forget Goethe, who still made successful amorous advances to very much younger ladies. (laughs) It is particularly gratifying for me, who has twice been forced to start afresh in life, to have found a haven of sanity in this country at a time when Britain was undergoing a life and death struggle with one of the most brutal and tyrannical regimes this world has seen, and to emerge victorious. I've been given great opportunities, was welcomed by all those encountered on my journey, and I have nothing but praise and a sense of profound debt of gratitude for having been allowed to convert challenges into opportunities which may have escaped me had my life followed a normal course. But let me conclude on a musical note. In my musical life, I've had the benefit of working with some of the finest pianists who have accompanied me both in recitals and recordings. But above all, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to my dear friend, teacher, and superb pianist Graham Johnson. He's been my main inspiration in the art of leader and I would like to conclude with a recording which Graham and I made of one of Schubert's greatest songs, The Earl King. It's a very difficult song, requiring from the singer four different voices for its interpretation and an extraordinarily fine left hand for the pianist. I can only hope that in this Bynum Tudor lecture, which I've accepted with deep gratitude and humility, I may, have given some, I may have given you some thought of how I viewed the challenges in my life and tried to take opportunities as they arose in a world in which we all have encountered great changes. <laughs>
2: dein Gesicht, siehst Vater, du den Erlkönig nicht, den Erlenkönig mit Kron und Schweif. Schöne Spiele, spiel ich mit dir, man spulte Blumen sind an dem Strand. Meine Mutter hat man schön gefallen. Mein Vater, mein Vater, und hörst du nicht? Was erne König mir leise verspricht. Sei ruhig, bleibe ruhig, mein Kind, in dürren Blättern säuse der Wind. Feiner Knabe, du mit mir gehen Meine Töchter sollen in dich warten schön, meine Töchter führen den nächtlichen Rein und wiegen und tanzen und singen in dich ein, sie wiegen und tanzen und singen dich ein. Mein Vater, mein Vater, und siehst du nicht dort, Herr König, Töchter am Weiden so grau. Ich liebe dich, mich reizt deine schöne Gestalt, und bist du nicht willig, so brauch ich Gewalt. Grows it.